I'm Les Chapman, Senior Preaching Minister here at the Hendersonville Church of Christ, and we're glad that you joined us today. You know, this last week's have been a very difficult time in our nation. Since the first of the year, we have just had literally one challenge after the other. You know, February saw a pandemic sweep throughout our country. We saw so many people's lives lost, lives are still being lost, and we were touched here at the Hendersonville Church through the loss of our brother Jim. And then, of course, because of us trying to stop the spread of this virus, we were urged to stay at home and businesses closed, and literally millions of people found themselves unemployed. And so we moved from a, a crisis of health to a crisis of economy. And over the last several weeks, our nation has struggled to know how in the world do we keep the economy going and yet fight this virus at the same time. Anxiety has continued to build and then, unfortunately, injustice reared its ugly head in Minneapolis a couple of weeks ago. And our country has once again been gripped because of the fact that underneath the surface of the American culture, is a culture of injustice that oftentimes we don't see and, and we don't even realize is there. And so we find ourselves in a very difficult time. And yet we come to a text today that speaks to us in a powerful way. We're in a series called His Story. And for the last several weeks, we've been looking at prophecies about the coming Messiah and His kingdom. Today we focus specifically on the aspect of his kingdom as we look at a text that's found in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel is before the king of Babylon, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. The king has had a dream, and Daniel is interpreting that dream. And as he brings it to a conclusion, he says, In the time of those kings, and we'll talk about what kings he was talking about, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. I want to call your attention especially to that last phrase. It will itself endure forever. If you've been with us the last several weeks, that word forever has popped up multiple times. You turn back to 2 Samuel 7.13, and there God promises to David that he would establish his throne forever. You turn over to Psalm 110, where you have the role that the Messiah would play, both as king and priest. And notice down in verse 4, you are a priest forever. And so when you look at Daniel 2.44, it just kind of jumps off the page. This is a kingdom that God will establish that will never be destroyed. It itself will endure forever. You know, when you turn to the New Testament, that concept of kingdom becomes so important. Here's John the Baptist. He comes preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And notice his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. What kingdom is John talking about? He's talking about the kingdom that Daniel had predicted some 600 years earlier. And so this text of Daniel 2 plays such an important role in understanding who Jesus is, what he did, but even more importantly, how we should be living in the present age. 
Let's go back to Daniel and, and kind of pick up with what's going on. The book of Daniel begins with these words. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This would be the first of three different attacks Nebuchadnezzar made against Jerusalem. Now on this one, somewhere around 606-605 B.C., he would simply loot the city, taking a lot of the gold, especially from the temple. He would also order his chief court officials, uh, Ashpenaz was the chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility of Judea. Now, what you would end up with is these young people being taken back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had evidently did that in all the different nations he had conquered, taking the smartest, the youngest, to bring them into his court and to use them as court officials. Among those that were taken was, of course, Daniel. And you may even recall three of his friends, Meshad, Shadrach, and Abednego. They would go to Babylon, and there they would enter into service to obey a pagan king. Daniel 2 begins with these words. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled, and he could not sleep. I suspect you have, like I have, had dreams that were so real that when you woke up, you're trying to figure out what in the world was that. That's where Nebuchadnezzar found himself. And so Nebuchadnezzar had called for all the astrologers and the wise men, the diviners, to come in and to tell him the meaning of his dream. Notice what the astrologer said to him. May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. Kind of reminds me of palm readers and people that tell the future. Tell me something about you and I'll give you insight into what is to come. Nebuchadnezzar was smarter than that. He turned to the astrologers and the diviners, the wise men, and he said, listen, if you can really tell the meaning of dreams, you should be able to even tell me what I dreamed. This horrified this group of men. They said, King, no one has ever been asked to tell the dream. Tell us the dream and we'll tell you the meaning. But no one can even tell you the dream. Nebuchadnezzar became furious sent his commander of the king's guard, Arioch, to put to death all the wise men of Babylon. Now Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were there, but they had just gotten there. You know, they'd been there just a few months. They're being trained. They had not been brought before the king. And so Daniel asked Arioch, why is the king so angry? Why has he issued this harsh decree? And Arioch explained it to Daniel. And so Daniel goes to the king. Here's this probably kid in his late teens, maybe 20 years old. And he goes to the king and said, King, if you'll give me time, I'll interpret your dream. And he immediately leaves and he goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, pray with me. And that night, God gave him the interpretation of the dream. He goes back to Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. And I'm sure with that, Nebuchadnezzar is thinking, then why in the world did you ask for time? But then Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And of course, what Daniel is doing is introducing Nebuchadnezzar to the one true God, the God of Israel. 
He then proceeds to tell his dream. Nebuchadnezzar had seen a vision of a giant statue. And the statue was made of four different materials. The head was gold, the chest was silver, the, the waist was bronze, and the legs were iron, and then the feet was a mixture of iron and clay. Daniel would go on to say, God has revealed to you what the future is, at least for the next 600 years. He told Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonian Empire, he was the head of gold, that God had used him to conquer these nations to bring about his ultimate plan. He then went on to tell Nebuchadnezzar that there would come another kingdom. We know it today as the Medo-Persian kingdom. Daniel would actually live to see it overtake the Babylonian kingdom and conquer it. That would be followed by Alexander the Great as he swept across the Middle East at that time, conquering from Greece. And then the Greek Empire would be replaced by the Roman Empire. And it was during the days of those kings that Daniel said God will set up his kingdom. And he goes on to say something very important. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. Fascinating text there. It will crush all of those kingdoms. Now the way it will crush it, Daniel says, is because of a rock. Part of the vision or the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was that while he was watching this statue, a rock was cut out, but it was not by human hands. And this rock came rolling toward the statue and struck its feet of iron and clay and smashed it. And the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all of it became like chaff. You know, the pieces of wheat that break away, that are blown away by the wind. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What was Daniel foretelling? He was foretelling the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. And so when you get to the New Testament, you see this concept of this rock. Now, usually when we come to the New Testament and we think of rock, we think of Peter. You know, his name was Simon, and Jesus had renamed him as Petros or Cephas, both meaning pebbles or stones. But you see, there are prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of a rock that's coming. And, and, and there are different passages from different texts and yet Jesus saw in each one of them a prophecy about himself. Luke chapter 20, you have a parable called the parable of the tenants. And it's basically a parable of judgment against Israel because Israel had not been faithful to God and done what God had asked her, in fact, had chosen her to do. It would take Jesus to fulfill what God wanted. But in responding to the Jews in that parable, Jesus says, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom that stone falls will be crushed. What's fascinating here is that Jesus goes back to the Old Testament, and he grabs three different passages, one in Psalms, one in Isaiah, and then this passage in Daniel chapter 2. You see, he begins with Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone the builders rejected. You remember last week, Isaiah 53, how the suffering servant would be rejected. Psalm 118 says the same thing. But that stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. 
You turn over to Isaiah 8 and you have this prophecy about the coming Messianic kingdom. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. What's going on here? Isaiah is looking down into the future and says, listen, when the Messiah comes, the problem is he'll not be what the people were expecting. And sure enough, all you have to do is read the Gospels. And you see that the Jewish leadership had no clue what Jesus was doing, even though he was fulfilling all of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. And then, of course, the Daniel text about that stone it will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to the end. Notice that word crush there. The last phrase used in the Luke passage. Now, because of Daniel, so many people in the first century were looking for the Messiah. And not just looking for the Messiah, but people would come claiming the, to be the Messiah and raise up followers after them. When Jesus was just a kid, Judas of Galilee came proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. The Romans would make sure he wasn't. There would be others who would come after Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 24, Jesus warned his apostles, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name. What name? The name of Messiah, of Christ. I am the Messiah, they will claim, and they will deceive many. Make sure you're not in that number. And so this prophecy of Daniel 2 was such an important prophecy. The Apostle Paul especially, following what Jesus, notice, Jesus, same thing as John the Baptist, repent, why? For the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Paul would grab that concept of kingdom and develop it in his epistles. Now it's very important at this point for me to, to clear up something. If you grew up in churches of Christ like I did, we were taught that the kingdom of heaven was simply another way of describing the church. That they were synonymous with one another. That you could just literally take the word church, replace it with kingdom of heaven, take the phrase kingdom of heaven, replace it with church. And that comes because of passages like Matthew 16, where Jesus tells Peter, For I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my assembly. And you say, Leslie, the word there is church. Yes, but Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, Matthew's writing in Greek. And, he's, and so he picks the Greek word ekklesia. But very likely Jesus used a different word. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you, to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And sure enough, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is, is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. He, he opens the door of the gospel to the Jews, later on to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And so, is the church the kingdom of God? In one aspect, the answer is yes. But we need to realize that this concept of kingdom of God is bigger than just the church. You see, the best way I know to describe it is simply to, anytime you see the phrase kingdom of God, replace it with the reign of God. Because that's really what the kingdom of God is all about. It is about Jesus reestablishing God's authority over all of creation. Not just the body of people, but over all of creation. 1 John 3, 8. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil's been sinning from the beginning. You see, it was the devil that caused mankind to rebel against God, and for all of creation because of that, to be under a curse. 
And the reason the Son of Man, or Son of God, appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What is it that Jesus came to do? He taught us, very simply, in what's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What does that mean? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, the rule of God needs to be on earth just like it is in heaven where it is absolute. Psalm 110.1 The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is destroying all the enemies of God. And 1 Corinthians 15.26 says the last one will be death itself. I like the way John writes in Revelation eleven fifteen. he says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. What's John saying here? He's saying that what Jesus is doing right now is establishes his kingdom. He's establishing it over all the world. And eventually, everything in rebellion against God will be brought to its knees and will be under submission to God. And that's what Jesus is doing. And so Paul, in his letters, would talk about the importance of seeing our role in the world different than the way we used to before we became followers of Jesus. Paul writes to the Philippians, the Philippi was a Roman colony, even though it was over in Macedonia. Uh, Rome would establish colonies that would allow people to uh, who were born there to become Roman citizens by birth. Paul had been born in Tarsus, another Roman citizen, uh, or a Roman colony that gave him citizenship. But notice what Paul does when he writes to the church at Philippi, who prided themselves in being Roman citizens. He says, but listen, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, who is the true Lord, the Messiah, Jesus who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Here's Paul saying, listen, I know you're Roman citizens, but you're citizens of a much bigger kingdom than the Roman Empire, the kingdom of heaven itself. And our king is bringing everything under his control. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's brought us into the kingdom of his son. Paul says in reality, there's only two kingdoms on the earth. There's the kingdom or dominion of darkness. And there's the kingdom of his son, which is light. And that's what being a Christian is all about. You see, in the first century, paganism was everywhere. And among the pagan beliefs was the belief that the Roman emperors themselves were gods. Ever since Julius Caesar, each Roman emperor, when he died, would be, be proclaimed a god, and they literally had temples. These are the ruins of the temple to Caesar in Rome. When Nero came to the throne, Nero didn't want to wait till he died. And so he proclaimed himself god while he was still alive. Now, you have to put yourself in the Apostle Paul's shoes. He lives in a culture where everyone is to proclaim Nero, Caesar, as Lord. Paul writes to the very capital of that empire, to Rome itself. And he says to the Christians there, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus 
is Lord. You see, I think we don't appreciate just how revolutionary that praise was. For them to literally in the heart of Rome to stand up and say, Nero, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus of Nazareth is Lord. And he goes on to say, if you believe it with all your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that's what salvation is all about. And so Paul was one who said, you need to understand what and who you are as part of the kingdom of God. You know, with all that's going on in our country right now, I think it's important for us to pause and ask a very simple question. What does Daniel 2.44 say about our citizenship as Americans? You know, when I think about the relationship that we as Christians have with the countries that we live in, and you've got to realize that the kingdom of God is literally all around the world. We have brothers and sisters that live in Russia, brothers and sisters that live in China, that live in Africa, South America, that live on the islands of the Pacific. We share faith with literally millions of people around the globe. And our relationship to those brothers and sisters should be greater than even our relationship to our fellow Americans because it's a higher citizenship. And so when you ask the question, what does Daniel 2.44 say about you know, being Americans? I think we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And I think Paul helps us to live as both citizens of heaven and then citizens of any country while we're here on the earth. Notice what Paul, I think, would tell us. First of all, can Christians be American citizens? Some believers think not. But Paul would say, of course you can. Paul was a Roman citizen. In Acts chapter 25, when Paul is put on trial before Festus, Paul declares that, guess what? I'm a Roman citizen, and, and I've not committed any crimes against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar himself. And when Festus tried to get Paul to go to Rome to stand trial there, Paul said, no, I'm not doing that. He says, listen, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I've not done anything wrong. And then he goes on and finally says, I appeal to Caesar. What is Paul doing? Paul is using his Roman citizenship to protect himself as he preaches the gospel. That leads us to the second thing we need to realize. And that is, not only can we be American citizens, but we need to use our freedoms as American citizens to advance the kingdom of God. That's what Paul did. Paul, when he was in Jerusalem before going to Caesarea, Paul had preached before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And even though they were absolutely furious with him, Jesus came to him at night and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify. You've got to go and preach in Rome. Now, how does Jesus get him there? His Roman citizenship. That became his ticket from Caesarea all the way to Rome. And we find Paul telling us throughout the New Testament, use your freedoms in whatever country you're in to advance the kingdom of God. Who knows? But that God has raised up America with all the wonderful freedoms that we have so that we might take the gospel to the rest of the world. And then number three, 
What does Daniel say about our citizenship as America? Christians should be a blessing to our country, but also we need to be its conscience. You know, Paul would urge in 1 Timothy chapter 2 for us to pray, petition, make intercession, and thanksgiving for all people, for kings and all of those in authority. You know, when Paul writes this, Caesar, the Caesar in Rome is Nero. And Paul's already been tried before him once and acquitted. But before long, Paul will be arrested again and Nero will have him put to death. And yet, here's Paul praying. But he's not praying for Nero per se. Yes, he would love to see Nero to obey the gospel. But notice what he's praying for. That we may live peaceful and quiet lives. And the reason for that is found in verses 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved. You see, it's a whole lot easier to evangelize when a nation is at peace than when it's at war. I can't imagine what it was like in Europe during World War II as the whole continent was literally in flames. And, and you know, how did Christians live out their faith during that difficult time? It wasn't easy. You see, peace gives us a better chance to share the gospel. But as I mentioned a moment ago, not only do we need to be a blessing, we need to be our nation's conscience. Paul was a conscience to the Roman Empire. Here he is in Galatians writing to, to Gentile Christians who are trying to be forced to become Jews before they can become Christians. And Paul will have none of it. Paul, in fact, will say, listen, the kingdom of God is different from all the other kingdoms. In the kingdom of God, there's not Jew or Gentile. We're all of the same blood, the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no, neither slave nor free. One of the things that you find in Paul's letters is this constant undermining of slavery in the first century. The little book of Philemon, the shortest book that Paul wrote, may be one of the most powerful, as it teaches us how to treat our fellow man. Nor is there male and female. I mean, in a world where women were oftentimes treated like property, Paul saying, not so in the kingdom of God. And you know, we live in a world where so many times there's violence brought against women by their spouses. And boy, there shouldn't be a greater voice against that than the voice of the children of God, Christians, who need to be the conscience of our country. And you know, right now, with all the rioting and marching that's going on because of, of this injustice that we find in the world. And as great as America is, there is still a lot of injustice here. Many of you know that prior to the pandemic, I went to River Bend Maximum Security Prison every week to work with inmates there. While there, I, I met a man by the name of Adam Brazil. Adam was a Christian was one of the leaders of the church there at River Bend. But one of the things that Adam constantly said was, I'm innocent. You see, 13 years ago, Adam was simply a young 20-something-year-old kid in Grundy County, Tennessee. He was married. He had a good job. When all at once he was arrested and charged with murdering a 60-year-old man. Adam said, he didn't do it. He didn't even know the man. And so he began to plead his innocence. But you see, what convicted him was a very simple fact. Adam was in his 20s, and he was redheaded. 
and witnesses to the crime said a 20-year-old white male with red hair committed the crime. And even though there were no fingerprints, even though there was no DNA evidence, he was convicted of murder. He would spend 10 years at River Bend. He would get out briefly and then sit back to prison for two more years before they would rerun the fingerprints. You see, there were fingerprints there. It just weren't Adam's. And when they reran the fingerprints about a year and a half ago, they found a match to a drug dealer in Grundy County who had long since been killed, but who had red hair. You see, sometimes we're arrested because of the color of our hair. Sometimes it's because of the color of our skin. Sometimes it's because of the economic status we find ourselves in. You see, injustice, it pervades our country. But we need to realize that just as Babylon fell, just as Medo-Persia fell, Greek, Greece fell, just as Rome fell, America will fall as well one day. But what will remain is the kingdom of God that we're citizens of. And that brings me to the last point that I want to make. And that is we must be careful of falling into idolatry. Now listen to me very carefully. I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. And I appreciate and thank God for the freedoms that we enjoy. But my citizenship is ultimately to a greater kingdom. And my American citizenship pales in comparison to my citizenship as a Christian, as a part of the kingdom of God. And what we all need to realize is that if we're not careful, our love for our country can become an idol to us. You see, idolatry occurs in so many different ways. It shows up as perhaps, you know, power or money. It shows up as, as a hobby or, or as a love that we have that's something greater than our love for God. And John would say in 1 John 5, 21, Dear children, Keep yourselves from idols because anything, any person, any nation can become an idol if we place it before our love for God. Please pray for our country. Pray that God will grant us peace. Pray that injustices will be righted and that God will give us the opportunity to continue to use the freedoms he's blessed us with to expand the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you at a very difficult time. Our nation is in a turmoil. And Father, you know. You know everything that's going on. And you will work through and in it to accomplish your purposes. We pray for our president. We pray for our vice president. For each senator and representative our judges, we pray for our governor here in Tennessee, as well as the mayors of our cities. Grant to each wisdom to know how to govern in a way that honors you during this difficult times. But my Father, more than anything, bless us, your children, that we can truly be light in a dark world, pointing to the true kingdom, the kingdom of your Son and our Savior. Jesus Christ. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen. May God bless you richly this week as you serve him.